Good evening. Welcome to uh, Knowing the Nature of Mind, part two in the trilogy of foundational or preparatory courses for the Rime Shedra curriculum, which we'll uh, undertake with a focus on uh, the view next year. And this year, the foundational courses, the preparatory courses are first as collective topics, knowing the nature of the objective world in Tibetan Dudra. And then secondly, knowing the nature of the mind, low Rick in Tibetan. And uh, included in that is Tarik, the science of reasonings as well. And then the next course will be on the system of tenets of the philosophical schools. So as usual, let's begin with our uh, chanting. And uh, I think everybody knows them. The chants, so we'll just go for it. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Good evening and uh, welcome. Thanks for joining us. And uh, tonight we do a review of the last course of the material of uh, knowing the nature of the objective world so that we're, we all have uh, feel somewhat comfortable with that material as we forge or forge ahead into uh, new material. And to do that, let's see, uh, I circulated a, a a little reading of, uh, what was it, three pages. So let's take a brief look at that. I'll put it on the screen if, let's see if my uh, co-hosted can, uh, somebody co-host me, please. You should. Oh, wait, I see what happened. Oh, I should be able to anyway, share. I loaded up everything except that. Okay. Which do you want, the Abhidharma one? Yeah. What's it called? Uh, The methodology of Abhidharma. Yeah, page 56. So. Let's see if I can screen share this. Okay. So this was taken from uh, somebody's dissertation who uh, 
translated the first two chapters of a very important of, of a text called uh, the treasury of uh, Dharma of Abhidharma it's a commentary on the treasury of Abhidharma by Vasubandhu who wrote the key or core text of the Shedra curriculum the treasury of Abhidharma and um, this commentary is called the ornament of the treasury of Abhidharma and it's by a gentleman named Chim Jampeyang and it became known in Tibet in shorthand as the Chim since that was his first name and Zhe which means treasury the Chim Zhe and it was it's uh, by far the most important uh, Abhidharma text in Tibet and this gentleman did a translation of the first two chapters in his uh, dissertation, Ian Coughlin. And subsequently he published the whole text, the whole translation, a uh, translation of the complete text in the library of, Tib of uh, Tibetan classics, coordinated by Thubten Jinpa. But he didn't include this, his introduction. And let's see, I have a larger excerpt. I gave you guys this part here. I believe. Uh, here we go. That I thought was really cool because it sort of identifies what's the sort of project of the Abhidharma. How is the Abhidharma working? The central epistemological process consists of the progression from parvriti, which is the truth of origination, or the world of change, in Sanskrit parvriti, to nivriti, the truth of the path, the devolution of samsara. Pravriti is the evolution of samsara, and nivriti is the reverse of that. Here the truth of origin, meaning uh, the truth of origin of suffering, the first truth of the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism refers to the afflictions, klesha, and karma, which it, klesha, generates. The root of all affliction is afflicted view associated with ignorance. So here we have the three steps in the development of samsara. We have ignorance, then we have afflictive view, um, actually four steps and then glaciers which arise from that and then karmic activity which is generated from that those four steps these function to misconceive the func the uh, law of causation of karma and the nature of the self i.e. the absence of a truly uh, established self the goal of the path which is wisdom perceptually comprehending selflessness. So wisdom is um, that faculty that understands higher nature of our world or our reality. Perceptually is often used to mean not conceptually, i.e. directly. This is more the terminology that I've been using, which I learned from the Natarta Institute, where they uh, 
they present this idea perceptually as being non-conceptual. They say non-conceptual is direct, comprehending selflessness. The truth of the path is the wisdom non-conceptually comprehending or cognizing selflessness, and it's attained through overcoming afflictive view, wrong view. In this progression from pravriti to navriti, is expanded, uh, sorry, if this progression, it consists of a journey through eight types of view, where the first six types reveal the nature of parvriti, and the last two the nature of nivriti. These eight views are enumerated as follows. And this is reminiscent of the uh, five wrong views in the uh, scheme of the 51 mental factors which we'll go through in this semester's course. Uh, the the uh, six root afflictions are attachment, aggression, pride, jealousy, um, stupidity, and wrong view. And wrong view has five types. It has incorrect view, meaning not understanding karma. It has transient view, meaning not understanding the Four Noble Truths. It has um, this idea of um, actually these map well, not exactly onto the five that I'm repeating. Um, there's what did I say? Not understanding karma, not understanding the five, uh, sorry, the four noble truths. Oh, extreme view is believing in a self, not understanding the nature of emptiness, believing that there is something that's established. The view of a limit is what this means. Supreme view is this idea that thinking that one has the supreme, most supreme view in the whole world, and that that one view can liberate. It's like the secret magic spell, and that one one has it, nobody else has it. And then holding ethics and ritual as supreme is the view that um, by doing certain activities like uh, standing on one foot for three years, or consuming only uh, one grain of rice for three years, that one will become enlightened by doing different things like that. And then correct mundane view is just uh, understanding cause and effect and the Four Noble Truths as um, and using causation as a way of understanding how to achieve a better existence within samsara. So all of these are within samsara. And then for exiting samsara, we have what he's calling here the learner transcendent view. Learner refers to shravakas. So the stage of the sort of what we would call the maybe the Hinayana or the Vibhachaka Sautrantika view of the nature of reality. Um, actually, let me not say that. The uh, the view of one who's on the, the path but not completely achieved enlightenment, a learner, 
which is shorthand for the first four of the five paths in the Buddhist tradition. The Buddhist tradition has a scheme of five paths, starting with accumulation, proceeding to uh, preparation or joining, where we join what we've accumulated into the ability to directly cognize the na true nature of emptiness. And then there's familiarization with the nature of emptiness, where we blend the uh, experience of post-meditation with the experience that uh, one has in meditation or equipoise. And then, and those four of the five paths are all called learners, because we're still on the path, we're still learning the nature of reality. And then the fifth path is called no more learning. So that's the non-learning learner view. These eight mark the progression from the afflictive to non-afflictive and from contaminated to non-contaminated. And then he gives some detail on these that I'll skip because I want to focus on um, this, that the first stage in the epistemological progression is to establish the causal potency of the process of pravriti, of the evolution of samsara. This can only be achieved by countering wrong view. Or uh, this could also be uh, sort of a gloss for uh, the 12 links of interdependent origination. Pratitya Samadpada. Champayong, the author of the text, the commentary, doesn't deal with the method of overcoming wrong view. A separate section instead he the assumptions which oppose wrong view are covered broadly within the body of his work, blah, blah, blah. They may be summarized thus. So this is what I wanted to get to, that these five are like five, it's a very, I find, very helpful way of summing up. What are we supposed to understand from studying the collected topics and having gone through all the laborious definitions of all those different things and the comparisons of the relationships and the structure of the hierarchy of uh, the dharmas um, and all that minutia and all that formal language we're supposed to understand that matter and awareness are composed of distinct irreducible compounded substance for one there's indis uh, partless particles of matter and there's um, undividable moments of time that constitute awareness. The structure of the external universe reflects the structure of our awareness and, and uh, we didn't really go into this uh, specifically or directly but what this is referring to is this Buddhist scheme of the three realms of the, f the desire realm, the form realm, and the formless realm. And the uh, appearance of sentient beings in those realms is based upon their uh, type of awareness that they have, what level of awareness that they have. Um, uh, basically what level of gross or subtle type of awareness they have. And we see this when those realms are affiliated with the absorptions. 
we we learn about how if one uh, perfects the form absorptions of the first four absorption states, one can be reborn in the form realms. And in in the life in this life, when one is in absorption states, one is dwelling in those form realms. So the the form absorptions are affiliated with uh, realms of reality as um, in the same way that we experience our realm of reality within what's called the desire realm. The desire realm is fueled by the uh, klesha of wanting and attachment. And because of that the, the predominance of that klesha, we experience a world of gross matter and gross um, uh, sort of experience that arises from that matter. And we're, we're accompanied in this realm by animals who have a similar experience. And uh, we're told that there's also other beings in the desire realm. There's hungry ghosts, there's hell beings, and there's some jealous gods, and there's also some gods who live at the very top or peak or the best part of the desire realm. But we're all in the desire realm. And the only reason why we perceive our environment or the universe as being the way that it is, is because our awareness is evolved to us in a certain way, karmically, where we all, all of us who appear in this realm and see uh, what we all see, trees and greenery and sun and moon and people and the entire myriad of phenomenal appearance, we all have a similar experience of that appearance because our awareness is of the same type, roughly speaking. So the external universe reflects the structure of our awareness. So individuals that have a more highly refined awareness are reborn in the form realm, realms or the formless realms, unless they intentionally take rebirth in parts of the desire realm in order to help sentient beings, such as uh, do various bodhisattvas. Uh, matter and awareness are compounds which are freely determined by the process of causation. They have no independent existence separate from the cycle of cause and effect. They all have parts, so they're, they're dependent in two ways. They're dependent upon their parts and they're dependent upon causation. Fourth, the continuum of matter and awareness are beginningless and never merge. And um, this is like in physics or in science where we say there's conservation of matter, there's conservation of energy. And our universe is a closed system. Matter can never disappear. The matter of the universe is unchanging. It goes through different forms but there's never more or less matter in the universe, supposedly. Um, I don't know, that may not be the, probably not the latest view in physics, but uh, that was sort of a basic view for quite some time. And similarly, in the Buddhist system, matter and awareness are separate entities, 
and they're beginningless. There's no time when they were created. The first time, you know, we, we looked at the, the cosmology where uh, there's the creation of the universe, but it follows the dissolution of the universe. And there was no time, no point at which that process began. It just has been uh, created and evolving and then dissolving and uh, ceasing and then starting again endlessly. And these two continuum never merge. Matter and awareness remain separate. Even though uh, we have so-called, you might say, we have awareness, or as sentient beings, we possess awareness, or that is one of our key aspects. And as we grow from a, a little baby to a large creature, a larger creature by consuming matter, in the form of food and air and water and so forth, that matter doesn't turn into awareness. Our awareness does not change in its size, in its shape, in its uh, entityness in, in any way. So they're beginningless and they never merge. Awareness is proactive. Awareness is what drives all of the universe. So the view that, uh, <clears throat> going back to number two is that awareness creates experience and that's sort of like a given from in this system in the in in the uh indian philosophical system in general inherited by the buddhist system and it's very different from our western scientific materialistic view uh, where So we have awareness is proactive and creates the world, and matter is what is created by it. Derek, can I ask a quick question? Yeah, for sure. When it, when it says um, awareness, matter and awareness are compounds which are fully determined by the process of causation, is process of causation, is that karma? Yes, uh, Karma, karma is, um, so uh, let's see, they're not exactly the same. Karma is really focused on the, um, the process of sentient beings uh, creating karmic, uh, creating uh, momentum and experiencing the effect of that momentum. And that momentum has a, an inherently ethically charged value to it of either positive or negative ethically. And karma does not really, is not really a description of the way the material world works. It's really the way that, um, sentient beings uh, generate these uh, uh, streams of propensities that um, uh, lie, lie dormant, give birth, grow, mature, and so forth. And causation is a more general term that uh, covers both matter and awareness. So could a <clears throat> being who has moved beyond karma, i.e. an enlightened person, um, well, okay, uh, 
I'm just thinking of the awareness of a person who's no longer um, experiencing karma, but they could still experience awareness because it doesn't have to come from karma. It can come from a more general causation. Is that fair to say? That That's a really good uh, example to, to point to. It's like, so we're talking about a Buddha who's not a sentient being, um, and a Buddha is no longer uh, accumulating karmic momentum but the the buddha is appearing in the form of a physical body and that physical body is subject to karmic momentum and karmic uh um uh cause and result but the mind stream of the Buddha is the awareness of the of the Buddha is not impacted by karma. If that helps uh, or responds to your your comment. Yes. Yep. So Thank karma you. comes in to three and five. I think so. Yeah. Let's see. Three yeah. and five. Sort of sound like you were saying. Yeah. The process of causation and then proactive. Yes. That's right. Three and five. That's right. Oh, and then, uh, so then he says, this worldview establishes the efficacy of pravriti. They do not counter it. As such, they form a worldview that may be designated as cognitive dualism. Um, so this is a description of samsara, basically but also of the potentiality for nirvana. But um, it establishes the efficacy of the development of samsara. And he calls it cognitive dualism. This view, therefore, is dualism, since it holds that matter and awareness to consist of beginningless, distinct continua. So you have the dualistic mind-body um, view. And it's cognitive since it holds awareness to be the governing principle. Awareness is primary. Mind is primary. And cognitive dualism supports the generation of correct mundane view, which affirms that it is the causal potency of karma as the mental factor of intention, which determines the way we experience the world. And so he's saying, going back to these eight levels of view, the correct mundane view is understanding karma. But one has not yet uh, undertaken the motivation of using that understanding to um, exit the samsaric system, but instead just to to experience a better samsaric world, either in this life or in future lives. He pretty much just repeats the same thing here. Um, and then he says the next two views... Well, understanding that there's a contaminated system of pravriti and the uncontaminated system of the path, nivriti, contaminated views, maintains the process of pravriti, uncontaminated. And then together, these assumptions that there are these two 
types of view form a worldview that may be termed transcendent cognitive dualism. It's cognitive dualism since it arises supported by the assumptions of cognitive dualism. And it's transcendent because it transcends the process of the evolution of samsara, which is itself initiated and maintained by the transient view of belief in a self. So it, it paves the way for understanding the view of the path that leaves samsara. The seven assumptions counter both wrong view and transient view, form the essential subject matter of Abhidharma, yet their mode of analysis differs. In general, one overcomes wrong view and dependence on the extensive analysis of substance as presented in the five foundations and the 75 dharmas. Anyone take a venture a guess what are the five foundations? I've called them bases. Skandhas or? No. Not exactly. They're similar to skandhas. So the five foundations are matter, oh. mind, non-associated mind and um, mental factors, non-associated formations, and then um, unconditioned dharmas. Those are the five foundations. And I'll pull up that little chart in a second here. On the other hand, one overcomes transient independence on the extensive analysis of substance as taught in the five aggregates. So we overcome wrong view by uh, the understanding of basically the Dharma theory, that everything's made of dharmas. And then we overcome um, the transient view of, the, of a self. And the terminology, transient view, is really an odd translation. Um, but it's the view of the self by the extensive analysis of substance as taught in the five aggregates, the 12 bases, and the 18 dhatus. And these are used to undermine the belief of a self in the uh, transitory. It, it's usually translated as the view of the transitory collection, which also is not not a very uh, is a very weird term, but it's this idea that we're we're holding that within the ever changing flux of the the uh, skandhas and dhatus and ayatanas. There is a self, and that's the the view of the transitory collection. Seeing that that there is a collection out of this transitory uh, list of uh, phenomena. Okay, so that was my attempt to provide a little synoptic summary of why are we studying Abhidharma? What was the idea of it? The Dudra, material collected topics, what was it gaining? Why did we you know, go through that extensive breakdown of, of categories into matter and, uh, and go through defining them and so forth? So we're, we're, we're doing that first step that is key in the Buddhist tradition and the Buddhist strategy to attain enlightenment is to counter the view that things are um, unitary by breaking them down. Counter the view that things are, are uh, continuous, 
unchanged by understanding that they're constantly changing, i.e. they're impermanent and they're not permanent. And um, it's sort of understood that suffering pervades. We don't need to go into that third aspect of the, the three marks, but we focus in, in uh, particular on the, the, the mark of essencelessness or egolessness. So uh, let's see what else we have here for our review. Okay, so we have the relationships. That uh, there's a two phenomena can either be identical, and their their names are synonymous, or they can be uh, completely exclusive. They have no relationship. They're totally different categories. What's based on what we've been discussing? What's an example of? Two phenomena which are totally unrelated, totally separate. From what we just saw in that. Awareness. Awareness. Yeah, and matter. Is it matter? Awareness and matter. Exactly. Thank you. And then we have uh, the situation where one includes the other. One group of phenomena includes the other and then where there's some overlap between the two groups. So we know those, those uh, way of, that these ways of characterizing the relationship between phenomena, which <coughs> will become more and more helpful as we go through the, the next semester of understanding uh, the, the uh, nature of the mind and the way reasoning is used to understand the nature of reality. Uh, let's see, we have <coughs> our collected topics chart. We should ideally all be very familiar with this. There's classification of phenomena. So um, it's a little dicey as to what you would, you might, uh, the relationship of the word existence to phenomena, but I'm going to venture to say that, that phenomena and existence are synonymous. And here we have objects, and objects have these synonyms, noble objects, existence, <laughs> what I just said, and established bases. and objects of comprehension and phenomena. These are all synonymous. So they're identical in terms of those relationships. And in, um, for the purposes of understanding the framework of this material, which ultimately is geared towards attaining enlightenment, we divide it into these three. Um, we divide phenomena into these three categories, objects, subjects, and the methods that lead to cognition of objects and subjects. Whereas subjects are really also within objects. So we see subjects are mind, consciousness, or, and awareness. In this system are synonymous. 
and we see mind or we see consciousness mind and awareness right here so subjects is really in here so if we're talking ontologically an ontological classification would only have this this one root phenomena all phenomena These are only broken out because they're discussed separately in this in this literature. So objects then ontologically are divided into things and non-things. And um, non-things include non-conditioned phenomena, permanent, generally characterized phenomena. What's an example of a generally characterized phenomena? Space. Space is a great example of a generally characterized phenomena. Um, it's also unconditioned and permanent in this system. What's another example? Time. Time is another uh, uh, phenomena. Time, however, is in this system, it's a non-associated formation. And so time is a thing. And um, what we'll see when we go into the tenant systems is that uh, this category, non-associated formations, oops, <laughs> that includes uh, things like time, quickly erodes from the, from the level of things over to non-things to be in a, a generally characterized phenomenon. That time has no independent existence. But in this system, time exists as a thing. It's a, a non-associated formation. Could you say that the non-associated would be psychological time and then physical time would be the other one? They don't really they differentiate. Don't do that. Yeah, they don't do that. Let's see, another example of, an, of a generally characterized phenomena. I'm going to give you a hint. The word is within the phrase. Words? No. Character? No. <laughs> Characteristics is. Well, is, is it general, like the general idea of something like the general category of a bird? A bird? Like, bird is a great yeah. example, right? A bird is a generally characterized phenomenon. It's it's a, uh, a type, right? We went through, at one point, there's different uh, uh, categories of... Uh, what do they call them? collections? There's a type collection, a name collection, um, but phenomena. Phenomena is it is a generally characterized phenomenon. Any, I'm sorry. I just I'm struggling with something with that because, okay, saying bird is sort of the general idea of a bird or that as a category. To say that that is permanent seems odd to me because it's what's your definition. Upon What's your definition of permanent? So, with the phenomenon, wait, 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 wait. What's the definition of permanent? Um, 
something that doesn't doesn't have a beginning or an end, or doesn't have an end. <clears throat> doesn't change in the very next moment. Okay. And and so a conceptual idea and bird is a conceptual idea because you didn't say a specific bird or the bird that I see out my window or the bird in the bird cage in right. my room. But you said bird and that's a, a category and all categories are generally characterized phenomena, they're generalized ideas. And um they don't deteriorate moment by moment instantaneously because they don't have that level of existence. They don't have that type of existence. But something like bird or any, they're so dependent upon um, impermanent things. So like you could imagine, or I'll do car because it's less depressing, but you could imagine a scenario where cars stop being a thing that are that exist in society and then 500 years later people forget they ever existed and then eventually get to a point where the category of car has no doesn't exist anymore because no one knows about cars anymore so then you know it's a, then what it, what does car become at that point it becomes an assemblage of letters that has no meaning Right. It becomes like a verb. Either either the written word is just an assemblage of word that has of letters that has no meaning, or the spoken word is is a collection of sounds that has conveys no meaning. Just like going. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's the thing. It's the content of the category that's impermanent, and so that can disappear, and then the category disappears, but the category itself is not considered impermanent. That right? That's right. The category itself okay. is not impermanent. And so phenomena is the biggest category. So okay. phenomena, when we say phenomena, we have an idea of like everything. <laughs> and it's it's probably a fairly amorphous idea. Unless you've seen the movie Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. <laughs> but uh, generally, so... Phenomena is like the one of the biggest, not generally characterized phenomena you can have. Okay, so ideas, generally characterized phenomena, um, unconditioned phenomena, space in this tradition, and cessations are non-conditioned phenomena. And uh, they are the object of a mind in certain trance states and we touched on that and how odd that whole category and idea is uh, and it's not terribly crucial in in regard to what the overall objective of this system is and the focus in our world system is clearly on things that and uh, we all know the definition of a thing is that which performs a function. And there's two types of uh, core functions that things produce. One is they're the immediate cause of the next moment of their continuum, which is not saying that they have uh, an existence beyond one moment. They're not, no, they're, they are radically impermanent, but they they are the 
uh, one of the causes and in the causation we have different types of causes and they're the what's called the direct cause of the next moment of their continuum or they cause uh, an observation or cognition of their entityness or their characteristics i.e. they are things are observable in some way by a consciousness things are conditioned phenomena all conditioned phenomena are things all conditioned phenomena are impermanent phenomena and vice versa and all specifically characterized phenomena are impermanent and conditioned so the bird in my hand the bird in the hand is worth two in the bush those birds are all things <laughs> and then continue with the ontological classification we have matter and we have matter of outer objects and these are the um, outer referent of our sense perceptions and then the matter of inner objects are the subtle uh, material that uh, when they come in contact with the outer object give rise to a particular type of consciousness oh there's a there's a huge contradiction here that this system didn't uh, dwell upon initially is uh, consciousness is not matter and somehow matter the interaction of outer matter and inner matter produces consciousness or impacts consciousness and for some reason that conundrum did not uh, produce uh, heart attacks in anybody early on um, but one of the key aspects of this whole system of dividing up our experience into these um, <clears throat> into the, the subject and object of the senses is to emphasize that our experience is made up of like channels like on a TV set you can flip from one channel to another so once one moment and moments are very short periods of time for one moment we might have uh, a consciousness of an auditory object the next moment a visual object and the next moment a sensation a tactile sensation and our existence is a stream of such moments very rapidly proceeding along changing from one type to another but that go along with these channels and the channels are very distinct and there's no receiver that is blending them all together the receiver is an independent um is independent each moment there's the receiver of the visual data the receiver of the auditory data and so on and there's these uh this channel like experience that goes on throughout our existence and the sense of self is what pulls these together and believes that i'm simultaneously seeing and hearing and feeling my existence my world whereas the reality of it is that um in a very micro level I'm flipping between seeing, hearing, feeling, hearing, seeing, feeling, you know, smelling, 
all those different things or thinking and there's no central um, entity that is experiencing them all so that's the main thrust of this chart is to break things down into into different categories so we begin to dispel the illusion of unitariness and self and other and uh, in persons and non-persons and that we understand uh, this idea of things and non-things in particular specifically characterized and generally characterized that we understand concept conceptual mind the conceptual world and the non-conceptual world are completely separate the conceptual world develops based upon um, the, ex the direct i.e. non-conceptual experience of the non-conceptual world, the specifically characterized phenomenon based on that, based upon that experience, <coughs> our mind produces general ideas about what we're experiencing in a, in a uh, very rapid micro and subconscious level all the time. Uh, there's a, uh, a lot of different types of causes and, con and conditions and results. And what we'll find when we go forward is that the most important category of them, and we didn't go that deeply into causes and conditions and results, but they will uh, <laughs> they'll be back. They'll be with us the whole time, excuse me, the whole time. The, um, the main scheme that becomes useful and relevant is the conditions, the four conditions. And they're sometimes for the ca four causal conditions. And that's because they're um, specifically related to the cognitive world. And the cognitive world functions first upon the preceding moment of cognition. The preceding moment of cognition means you have a cognitive capability. You have a mind. And based upon that mind, you can cognize one thing after another. And so the cause or the causal condition or the condition for the arising of this moment of cognition is that there was the last moment of cognition. Cognition doesn't come out of nowhere. It arises from the prior moment of cognition, ad infinitum, and it produces the next moment of cognition, ad infinitum, beginningless and endless. And this is the basis of the, the proof of rebirth in the Buddhist tradition, is that mind has no beginning and no end. Um, when we experience a cognition, it is based upon one of our six types of mind. 
There's six types of mind, the five sense conscious minds, consciousness, and again, mind and consciousness in this system are synonymous. So there's six minds, there's six consciousnesses, or six awarenesses, and those are the dominant conditions of a cognition. So when I have a visual co cognition, the dominant condition is the visual um, the visual the uh, the visual sense base is the dominant condition of a visual cognition. The object condition is is the sense object in the case of a visual experience of the color blue. This is the most uh, famous example of a cognition in the Buddhist tradition. The cognition of the color blue is uh, the object condition. So somewhere in our visual field, there is um, the reflection of blue light. And uh, that becomes the object condition of the cognition of uh, visual consciousness of the color blue. The causal condition is um, the shining of light onto the blue surface or the color blue such that it uh, projects into our eye and um, so if it's completely dark and there's no light then we don't see the color blue i have a question um mm -hmm. it's okay yeah yeah the notion i mean the the um statement of the cog that cognition does not come out of nowhere is that specific to this particular view and level and does that are there other contexts in which that is not the case i don't believe so in the buddhist tradition i believe that's universal in the buddhist tradition At all, you know, even a Madhyamaka or a. Um... I believe so. Okay. I believe so. Here's a, a outline version of all the material we went through in the last course, and uh, what I just went through in a in a broad way. Um, Actually, we didn't we didn't go through this uh, in the system that I was in in Natorta Institute. This is touched on, I think, in the in the collected topics. But uh, we'll be going into this scheme in the next class. So I'll skip that for now. In terms of entity, we talked about non-things and the three examples of non-things in this tradition are of the Sautrantika, our space, analytical and natural cessations. And then things are classified in terms of entity into matter. We have that a very simple list of matter, of outer and inner objects, or inner, outer and inner matter. Then we have mind, and there's these six minds. 
And then we have mental factors, and we'll be getting into mental factors in detail in this, this course. We'll go through all of those. But broadly, and it would be helpful to, to begin to become familiar with these categories if you're not already, is that mental factors, which are generally numbered at 51 in the system that we'll be going through, are categorized into these six groupings. There's omnipresent mental factors that are present in every moment of cognition. There's object-determining mental factors that uh, occur in every moment of object-oriented cognition. So if you're in a cognition that is uh, based on an analytical cessation, there's no object, you don't have the object-determining mental factors present. Then there's ethically toned mental factors. There's virtuous ones. There's root agglictions. <laughs> Jeez, how many times have I been through this document? <laughs> root afflictions. <laughs> and uh, which are the six, six big ones that I mentioned earlier. Uh, attachment, aggression, pride, jealousy, doubt and wrong view, something like that. Then there's secondary afflictions, and then there's changeable mental factors that are uh, can uh, go both ways, so to speak, positive and negative, virtuous and non-virtuous. The non-associated formations um, <coughs> in the chart were summarized into two types, those related to the person and those that are not the person. So the person is one of the non-associated formations, and the rest of them are these. The quality of acquisition that a sentient being uh, possesses, so to speak, in acquiring karmic potential. Life force we talked about. We skipped most of these. Um, <coughs> there's names, words, letters, the four uh, stages of production birth, stability or enduring, aging or uh, age and impermanence, becoming, it must have something to relate it to those, um, the way that phenomena are distinct, the way that phenomena are the same, speed, you know, it's, it's an odd list <laughs> and there's no, there's no apologizing for this list, it's a weird list. And often the translation of these terms does not do justice to what the underlying meaning is, and I don't uh, remember the underlying meaning of all of them offhand. Uh, succession, <laughs> region, time, somebody mentioned earlier, number, totality, differentiation. Classified in terms of function, we looked at that and results. And then we had the methods that lead to cognition of objects and subject which are types of phenomena. There's contradictory phenomena like um, uh, fire and ice are contradictory phenomena. Connected phenomena are phenomena that are connected either as parts of a whole, a whole and part and its parts, <coughs> or a compounded entity and its parts, and then connected causally. 
So identically means connected in terms of uh, partness. And then there's concrete phenomena, phenomena that are um, uh, ob observable with the senses. Types of cognition, there's negations, and we talked about negations. There's implicative and non-implicative negation, and, and this whole uh, this idea of implicative and non-implicative negation is one of the most important ideas to know about because it is the way that we understand the true nature of reality of being empty of any true existence. An implicative negation implies that the phenomena in negated exists somewhere else or in some other way. And a non-implicative negation does not imply that that negated phenomena, what's called the object of negation, has some existence in some other way, in terms of locale or uh, character or whatever. It's three types of generalities. There's a type generality. What type is that? What type of bird is that? What type of animal? What type of phenomena? There's a collection. What's an example of a collection? You mean like birds? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Birds. <laughs> there's birds. It's a collection. There's many different. So there's uh, among the many different odd phrases in the in the collected topics material beginning with the definition of matter as being that which is suitable to be matter <laughs> type and collection were said to be synonymous but basically anything that's a type generality is a collection generality and vice versa and for some reason they feel that it's helpful to um, isolate them conceptually as different aspects of generality. And I use the word isolate because it's a technical term for the conceptual process of creating a generality that will come across uh, a lot. The term isolate. Ah, there it is. <laughs> uh, forest is a collection of trees. Uh, you know, a, a, group of people as a collection of people and so on term generality terms birds that's a term <laughs> it's a word that uh, has it refers to a group of specifically characterized phenomena and as such the term itself is a generality things are one meaning they are uh, identical either in their isolate, their conceptual reality, or their actual reality, their entity, or their one in type. Uh, when we say like um, uh, color and sound are one in that they're both types of matter, or they're one in substance, they have the same uh, basis of designation. Difference is the opposite, and then uh, the way definitions work, there's or the the process of defining all of the stuff that we talk about in the whole 
in all of these courses. There's the definition, which is an assemblage of words that convey conceptual meaning. There's that which is uh, defined is the definition. The definition of a bird is a winged creature that, you know, that flies or something like that. You know, I don't know any, I don't know the formal definition, some sort of like invertebrate that is cold-blooded and has a beak and, I don't know, flies. Um, and then there's the basis for def definition is the bird in the cage in the room or the bird in the hand or the two birds in the bush outside the window. A brief overview of the three topics that we're going through in these uh, foundational courses. Dudra, collected topics. <clears throat> Lowrick is the classifications of mind. So low is one of the types of mind. You may have, uh, be familiar with Trungpa Rinpoche's. There's in the Profound Treasury, I think there's a little chapter on low, uh, Rick and Sem or something like that. Three aspects of mind. Low is um, a sort of very general aspect of mind. So um, Rick, in this case, means the science of uh, as opposed to rikpa, which is awareness. And uh, in the sutra tradition, rikpa is awareness. And uh, Dzogchen rikpa means something else. It's primordial wisdom. But uh, so we have science of mind, or the classification of mind is how it's generally translated because the science of mind is presented in a system of classifications and definitions as we did with the collected topics and then ta is uh, the word for reason um, uh, it's the part of a syllogism that has a predicate and a hypothesis and a reason sound is created because it's impermanent and this impermanent is the reason that sound is impermanent and so again we have the word rick so classification of reasons and there's reasons based upon the nature of phenomena reasons based upon the functionality of phenomena and reasons based upon uh, syllogisms uh, sorry uh, syllogi syllogistic reasons are based upon uh, um, the nature of phenomena, the function of phenomena, or the absence of observation of phenomena. is Because there's no uh, X, Y, or Z observable, therefore, blah, blah, blah. So the collected topics has what well, we went through, objects in that same schematic, and it had a... Um, just skips over explanation of subjects and then it went through these categories that I just went through. Classifications of mind has this material that we'll be going through. It has valid cognition, the definition of valid cognition. Um, there's direct valid cognition, so there's two types of valid cognition, direct and inferential. And the types of direct valid cognition, <laughs> the types of inferential 
the result of valid cognition. Non-valid cognition has three, has these two types. And then a further uh, exploration of the mode of engagement, apprehending generality in particulars, appearance elimination, and so forth. And then a further extrapolation of the mental factors. Uh, the the uh, delineation of primary and secondary mind or primary minds, consciousness, and mental factors or mental events. In what ways mind and mental events are what are called congruent. We'll go through that. And then the 51 mental factors in the six groups that we just saw. 5 and 5 is 10, plus 11 is 21, plus 6 is 27, plus 20 is 47, plus 4 is 51. And then we have the collection of reasons, classifications of reasons, uh, the support for inference, which is the correct mode of reason, and what is the definition of a correct reason, what are the three modes of a syllogism, and what is a thesis. And then we have uh, the correct reason of result of self-nature of non-observation, which I just mentioned. Uh, reasons based upon functionality is result, nature, self-nature, uh, and non-observation. And then we have divisions of correct reasons. And this is couched in all this uh, technical terminology naming that we'll, we go through to some extent, invalid seeming reasons, reasons that are not valid, invalid, contradictory, and uncertain. And that's the overview of what, what we'll be going through in the next course. And the syllabus briefly, we have again a wonderful int uh, introduction by His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. And then we go through the nature of mind itself, and we go through these um, these category the categorization of consciousness into conceptual and non-conceptual, and how sense consciousness func uh, factors into that mind and mental factors. There's uh, the difference between valid and unmistaken or valid and mistaken. And then we get into uh, mental factors, distinguishing mind and mental factors, and then going through the mental factors, omnipresent, determined, object determining, virtuous ones, and then the flick, uh, the afflictions. And then a cool section that, that is not part of what I went through earlier as the traditional material for the classifications of mind is this, uh, these sections on gross and subtle minds, which like the first volume where they went through uh, the cosmology and they went through the embryology and some other stuff, the subtle body that are very much not in the traditional uh, class of uh, collected topics. Again, they've put in material that is not specifically in the traditional Lorick, um presentations, but is related to it and based upon it and interesting and, and sort of helpful. So we have um, some, some uh, 
further aspects of mental factors, but then we have this delineation of gross and subtle minds, and then how gross and subtle minds are presented in what are called the shared traditions, which are the sutra traditions, and then in the tantric traditions. How mind engages its objects, and that was the three types at the very beginning of the uh, chart here. How objects are, t uh, they, how they are taken as objects, and uh, let's see, where are we? <laughs> uh, how mind engages its, its objects, and uh, that's that's a, a, a key part of understanding how mind functions is understanding that the object of a conceptual mind is ontologically different from the object of a non-conceptual mind. And then a summary of cognition in terms of the sevenfold classification. That's a famous way of uh, breaking down cognition within this tradition. And then we start in going into reasoning, general discussion of reasoning and rationality, and then the categories, more uh, detailed versions of it correct evidence, incorrect evidence, and then a text by Dignaga, a short little text called The Drum of a Wheel of Reasons. <laughs> and there seems to be this uh, lore in the Indian context of like beating a drum as being like the way that you uh, beat home a topic or you, or you uh, make a big deal out of your uh, hypothesis or your thesis, your uh, discovery or whatever it is you want to present. You beat a drum, gain people's attention. And then this will save for a rainy day. All the stuff that you guys know backwards and forwards. And uh, lastly, we have a schematic that I'll uh, circulate here of uh, classifications of mind. We have valid and non-valid cognition. Non-valid consists of wrong cognition and doubt. And uh, valid cognition has direct, non meaning non-conceptual and inferential, using, using reasoning and all the different categories of that. And um, it's not shown here, but we'll see that there's a progression. The, the idea is that the progression that we all as um, travelers on the path go through in our understanding of the Dharma is that we go from the position of wrong cognition where they think that we think that everything truly exists the way it appears. And then if we're lucky and we encounter the Dharma, we have the first experience of doubt about our prior view or our overriding view of the way things are. Well, we, we are introduced to the notion that maybe things are empty, maybe there's no self. And so we begin to doubt our habitual mind uh, perception that is geared towards, in every moment, believing in a self. 
and we begin to have doubt about it. And so doubt has this uh, bivalent of nature where doubt can be a hindrance, where it can hold us up and just produce a, uh, a stalemate condition where we're not able to, to move forward in any way. Or it can be the key determinant on our tra trajectory into the path of Dharma where we doubt our assumptions that we've lived by up until that moment, assuming that uh, things are real and uh, the self in particular. And then we go through a process of developing uh, valid cognition using reasoning. Generally, that's done in an informal way by most Dharma practitioners of trying to understand uh, the Four Noble Truths, trying to understand uh, in particular the three marks of existence, radical, gross, and radical impermanence or subtle impermanence, uh, understand the nature of suffering and how we give rise to suffering, and understand the nature of uh, the uh, of the sense of essence or self and its absence. And we use um, reasons. We most most Dharma practitioners don't have formal syllogistic reasons appear in their mind. Um, but they have, we have general reasons, and we're presented generally with the notion that the uh, sentient being that we, that we feel like we are is made up of the five skandhas. So we break down the unitary nature of our experience into parts, and we look for where is the self in relation to the aggregates. And so within that activity of looking for the self within the aggregates, we're going through a logical reasoning of saying, if there's a self, then it must have a relationship to the aggregates. That's, that's the hypothesis of the belief in a self. Because I experience directly and very concretely the different aggregates. And I only have an intimation of the self. I can't really grasp the self. When I try to find the self, it's a little elusive. But we have a very strong sense of conviction that there is a self within the aggregates somehow, somehow related to the aggregates. And so we go through the choices. Is it one of the aggregates? Is it the mind? <coughs> what about my body? And uh, so maybe it's not one of the aggregates. Maybe it's all of them. Is it the collection of them? Is it the relationship of them? Is it the way they're they're uh, shaped, the way they are f uh, compiled together in ascension being? Or is is the self somehow separate from the aggregates, but able to interact with them? And so really uh, what we're doing is an informal way of inferential valid cognition which then, in the more serious study of the Shadra system, we learn the formal uh, way of doing that using syllogistic reasoning and getting very clear on what are the different aspects of the aggregates, of the basis of designation upon which we assume that there is a self, and very clear about our language and our terminology, and then proceed to go through uh, 
process of developing direct valid cognition. And along the way, we encounter our seeming direct cognition, our mistaken consciousness, which is conceptuality that superimposes something onto another consciousness. Uh, conventional consciousness based on terms. There's a, ter there's a word for it, so it must exist. <laughs> um, and then gradually we, we learn inference in a loose way and um, encounter this idea of using conceptuality, conceptual um, inference to understand things that we can't perceive directly with our senses and therefore are considered to be hidden objects. Um, there's these other types that I won't go into except that wrong consciousness arisen from an impaired basis is like uh, let's say when you're drunk and you're seeing things or you're doing other types of you've ingested other types of substances and you're seeing things that aren't there even in the conventional self so you have a wrong consciousness you have an impaired basis <clears throat> comments questions so far So the self arises from conceptual thinking, which is imaginary. <laughs> there, I'm done. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of phenomena is the self? Eric. <laughs> that was good. Something's going on with your internet connection, and uh, I couldn't hear, couldn't understand a word. I don't, I don't think anybody else could either. Try putting it Gobbledygook. It sounded really neat, though. <laughs> Do you want to try that one more time? <laughs> Maybe try putting in the chat. You're getting some extra overlay that makes it incomprehensible. Self is a devil? Let's all mute ourselves and see if that helps. He put generally characterized phenomena in the chat. A generally characterized phenomena. So. Um, a generally characterized phenomenon is a non-thing, and um, a, a self is definitely a generally characterized phenomenon. It's uh, is it an unconditioned phenomenon? There's this funny, there's this odd, uh, sorry, Mary Beth. Well, I was going to say, <clears throat> is it a non-associated formation? The cell? No, because uh, non-associated formations, excuse me, are things. 
and things are specifically characterized phenomena. Okay. Okay. But when we look at a, when we look at this chart yeah. of the collected topics, there's there's this vagueness going on around this area of non-things, where you have some oh. some specific non-things, like we saw in the other list. There's space and the analytical and non-analytical cessations, and those are um, those are experienceable phenomena. It's funny. They um, they don't fit the, the definition of a thing. Meaning either they don't produce the next moment in their continuum or they're not observable. And I think it's the former because I think the object of a non-analytical cessation is observable by a non-analytical cessation. But they don't produce the next moment of their continuum. But there's this vagueness around this area in terms of like, are these phenomena, are these existent phenomena or not? Because we had here that objects are existence and non-things are an object. And objects are knowable and comprehensible. So non-things are knowable and comprehensible conceptually. Um, but there's this oddity with the the uh, the non-analytical and analytical cessations, where are those um, knowable directly, i.e., non-conceptually? Is space knowable directly, i.e., non-conceptually? So are they a specifically characterized phenomenon or a general characterized phenomenon? There's this whole vague area of of the non-things. And so when we go into the the higher uh, tenant systems, as we'll see when we go through the, the um, exploration of the tenants, the systems of tenants of the different schools, um, the Sautrantika system is surpassed by the Chittamatra system, which, which then relegates all non-associated formations to non-things. And all non-things um, lose any sense of thing, any non-thingness. They sort of become non-existence. And the self in particular is a non-existent. But the difference between a non-existent and a non-conditioned phenomena is fuzzy. What's the difference between a, a non-existent and a non-conditioned phenomena? Because um, if something's non-existent, you've identified that thing that you're saying is non-existent, and therefore you've conceptually comprehended it. It's a generally characterized phenomenon. So in some sense, there's no non-existence. Meaning that it exists if only in your own mind, right? It exists only in your mind. That's correct. Like yeah. those laser space creatures or whatever that are taking over the world and all that. 
oh, what do they call that? People buy and sell, right? These the digital images of things. Oh, the NFTs. NFTs. <laughs> well, I mean, those are actual. I I guess they're are those tangible things. They're. I don't know. <laughs> this is way beyond. They're, they're me. not. They're not tangible. They're fungible. <laughs> <laughs> they're non-fungible. No, that's right. Non-fungible. <laughs> <laughs> Cryptocurrencies, similarly, right? Yeah, seriously. So we're saying that the self is a generally characterized phenomena in this scheme. The idea of a self is a generally characterized phenomena. Yeah, it's a conceptual idea. What I'm struggling with with that is um, if a if like this glass is a specifically characterized phenomena, like why isn't this human a specifically characterized phenomena? It is. But then my own sort of conscious understand or like my own experience of there being a self that is running the show of this human, that's the thing that's a... Yeah, I, yeah. I, when I look at you, I see you, but I don't see yourself. <laughs> well, see but do you? See, but she said this human being. Why? Yeah, I see a human being. So, is the human being a specifically characterized phenomenon? Well, Emily is a specifically characterized phenomenon, but a human being is a generally characterized phenomenon. Right, calling it a, it calling Emily a, a, a human being. We're now talking about a generally characterized phenomena. But there's a big difference between generally characterized phenomena that have an existent uh, referent object. So we say with non-conceptual cognition, we say uh, non-conceptual cognitions have <coughs> an, an, a, a, um, an object of engagement an object that they can that we can actually engage uh, either with our physicality or with our <laughs> cognitive uh, capabilities <clears throat> whereas conceptual uh, cognitions the objects of those are not um, what did i just call them are not objects of engagement. You can't actually engage with the idea of a human being. <coughs> so, so conceptual okay. cognitions have what's called a referent object. They refer to something. And there's two broad categories of what conceptuality can refer to as its object. One is uh, phenomena that uh, are um, labels or names for specifically characterized phenomena like birds and human beings <clears throat> or Emily it would be all of the people in the world that are called Emily <laughs> and um, and then there's referent objects that have no uh, basis of designation such as the self such as uh, 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 unicorn or a hare with horns right and those okay. are very those are very different objects of uh, conceptuality referent objects um but ontologically they're they're similar 
there's, right. there's so I no, guess there's no clear yeah. distinction of them in the Zaldronica system. And so in the Chittimatra system, they clearly distinguish these using what uh, framework? Does anyone know the, the the some of the main frameworks in the Chittimatra system? What's one of the basic ones? Everything is mind. That's the fundamental premise. What's another scheme? Are we talking about like those agists and things like that? Uh, um, there's three. 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 Uh, the, oh, the three natures. The three natures. Yes. So, what's the three natures? <clears throat> the. Um, <clears throat> Oh, the perfect, the perfect one, um, and then the uh, dependent nature, and uh, sorry, I'm. Caught, <clears throat> caught you off guard, and uh, Neil. Imaginary. Thank you. The, the imaginary nature. So the imaginary nature includes selves and jack rabbits with horns and unicorns and things like that, and uh, a real self. And the dependent nature is phenomena that have a basis of designation and experience, like birds and trees and things like that, that are <coughs> that are um, generally characterized phenomena, but they're based upon specifically characterized phenomena, as well as the specifically characterized phenomena are also dependent nature. So when I'm like um, sitting here experiencing my own body, for example, the specifically characterized phenomena of Emily is like the, the physical stuff that's here. And then the generally characterized phenomena, phenomena of my sort of self that I imagine, that's the generally characterized. And those two things are separated. That's even right. Even though I experience them as connected i would just say though that you mentioned that it's the, specifically the physical but it would also include your uh, psychological experience too the specifically characterized thank you exactly right, right. it includes right. both the materiality and the the mentality the awareness and the different aspects of awareness consciousnesses and mental factors and so forth all okay. of those make up uh, like, you know, when you point to this thing, <laughs> you're pointing to a collection of matter and minds, although you're, you can't find where your mind is. And uh, and actually, you can't find, like, you know, where your finger is or where your head is. Right. There's no place yeah, that, you know, is the finger. I think that's what I'm struggling with this is I feel pretty comfortable saying that myself doesn't exist and what exist. I feel uncomfortable with the idea of saying that there's some existent specifically characterized anything that's here at all that that seems if you're going to negate the self like i think you in my mind you pretty quickly negate everything else too right and so in the buddhist tradition those are known as as what there's there's twofold we're talking about egolessness yeah. Twofold egolessness. That's right. The two egos, egolessness. There's the egolessness of the self of persons, 
and then there's the egolessness of the self of dharmas right. <clears throat> and there's some traditions that say that those are independent understandings and then there's some traditions that say you can't have an understanding of the uh, egolessness of uh, selflessness of a person without understanding the selflessness of dharmas right okay that's helpful thank you yeah, i mean i think what what many people have difficulty with is that it, it's not denying your direct experience as experience right. that's that's the key is that and, and since so much of our experience does sort of reinforce the notion of self because of our confusion our our concepts about it but that's where we have to sort of tease out the difference between the sense of a self as a an entity and the fact that we still have all this experience the collection of experience right so there's this scheme uh, within the the system of reasoning uh, called um, superimposition and denigration ontologically superimposing that there's something there that's not there i.e a self within the aggregates and on the other hand we can go too far the other way and say that there's nothing there everything is just partless parts or uh, you know just you can uh, break everything down into parts ad infinitum and they'll never find anything and come up with a nihilistic viewpoint and so the idea of the middle way is that it's between denigration and superimposition so our body has the experience and it's touching the experience but the self is kind of like an Im imaginary recreation of the experience i just I, there was something i just saw about that it's kind of like the self it's kind of like recreates your environment but it's not the actual environment and well that's how we navigate the world through a self I, I don't know. It made sense when you guys not, said it. Not really. We 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 think that's what it's all about, but in fact, there is no self there. Right. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. There is no self there. Just... So, the, so the way we navigate in in reality is through our collection of consciousnesses having experiences, as Derek described right. earlier, moment by moment, and then we slap this label on top of it, and we call it self. Right. So. Uh, you're both getting at the, at the same or at least a similar uh, reality, but uh, Chris, Christopher's language was not that precise because you said a self is this, you know, recreates, a self recreates this experience of uh, tactility or whatever it was or the environment. And by definition, a self can't do that because it's a non-thing and it can't perform that function. But um, <clears throat> our cognitive apparatus assumes that there is something that there that's not there. And our cognitive apparatus, the moment after we experience a sensation through our other five senses, such as touch, it creates a mental picture, i.e. a generally characterized idea of what we're experiencing. We touch a surface and we think oh it's smooth or it's hard or it's a chair or a table or whatever 
we immediately conceptualize. So cognition goes from the non-conceptual using the, the direct experience of our senses to the conceptual and then um, some of the time and then a lot of the time our conceptual world takes over and doesn't let any sensory experience in as we all know we just can float around in our cognition our our cognitive haze for quite some time Ah, we're way over time. Sorry about that. So um, I hope that was sort of helpful. Trying to uh, both go through the what we went through last class and as well as introduce the material that we'll go through in the next class. And, and uh, we'll dive in next class with uh, the introduction, the preface and the introduction of the book. Any further comments or questions or suggestions? Okay, cool. And uh, uh, I, I haven't mentioned this, but there is there is from the Dutarte Institute there is a uh, root text. Uh, where was that? from the Natarta Institute that if you're interested and I'll be referring to it here and there because it presents just like the collected topics group text presented it presents the subjects that we're going through in a concise definitional way and uh, I have to see if I can get a better scan of this uh, but we'll, we'll be going through this as well. Definitions of mind. There is, there are definitions of mind. This, this is one last thing real quick. There are definitions of mind because the definition of a mind is that which is clear and aware. So it begins with somebody saying, there's no definition of a mind. And you say, I don't accept in the debate format. I don't accept that. There is a definition of mine. And then the other person says, what is the definition? If, if there is a definition of mine, what is it? And you say the definition of mind is that which is clear and aware. And the definition of consciousness is that which is aware of objects. And awareness is that which experiences an object of comprehension. And they have different definitions because they're different conceptual isolates. But ontologically, they're the same entity, i.e., mind consciousness awareness anyway that's a quick little dive into the root text of the natarta tradition which is the kagyu tradition and then we're using a commentary a commentarial uh, text without the root text you know so the books that we have are commentaries on these subject matters and uh, they come from the galupa tradition and within the galupa tradition each sub sect of that tradition uh, has its own root texts and the Galupa tradition has three main Shedra schools and they each have their own root texts and commentaries and so forth um, but they didn't these books did not provide us with the root text so um, the Natarta versions are helpful 
to see the sort of pithy definitional part and you can get that root text from the Natarta Institute website. I'll send that link around if you want. So let's uh, dedicate the merit. By this merit may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. And, uh, and just briefly, there was something that I started to say at the very beginning before we recorded, before we sat, that I forgot then to say later, is that I'm personally really psyched that we're going through this material because uh, I feel like for uh, almost 20 years now, like 18 or whatever it is, years, I've been going through these advanced texts with people, uh, primarily you guys, without you having gone through this foundational material that I went through like 20 years ago and it was extremely helpful. And so uh, I think it'll really change the way that we are able as a group to go through the more complicated texts that we'll go through next year after this. And, um, and you might uh, enjoy searching the internet, uh, you know, the prevalence of uh, groups that have courses on collected topics or Dudra. You can like, uh, before class I was playing around, I was searching for uh, Dudra courses. <laughs> and there's not that many out there in the, in the world of Buddhist, Buddhist centers. And they're generally, the ones that are out there are very uh, sort of uh, monastically oriented and scholastically oriented. So you've joined the uh, a very small, uh, community of educated shadrites <laughs> to use the famous language that they use at the graduation of uh, certain universities thank you and looking forward to seeing those of you who can make it in person on Saturday and I'm sorry for those that can't we'll do it again sometime take care thank you bye thank bye, you. bye.